Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of First Chronicles, one of your favorites, I know. I'm sure everyone here spends a lot of time in First Chronicles. We're going to chapter 28. Pick it up in verse 1, and we'll be going through verse 7. David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem, the officers over the tribes, the commanders over the divisions in the service of the king, the commanders of thousands, and the commanders of hundreds. The officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the warriors, and all the brave fighting men. And King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. And yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as leader. And from the tribe of Judah, he chose my family. And from my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, the Lord has given me many. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father and I will establish his kingdom forever. If he is unswerving and carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Today, as I mentioned in my Friday email, if you got a long Dauphin way this last Friday, today we are, we're kind of mashing up several memorials and celebrations all at once. We're reaching back, we're reaching forward and kind of putting them all together. As we've already heard today, today is Pentecost. That's the celebration of the global church uh, through thousands of years now. It's the day in which we celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit 50 days after Easter. It is the day in which we celebrate the birth of the church and the fire that still burns within the church. And it is also a much uh, probably lesser known amongst many of us, but within our own little branch of Christianity's family tree, within uh, that part that we call Methodism, this is Aldersgate Sunday, uh, which is the the Sunday that we often tell the story of how a, a preacher by the name of John Wesley felt that fire in his heart. He said he felt his heart strangely warmed on a day as he was returning from a Bible study, and he'd been preaching for for years at that point in his life, but at this moment, he finally felt for himself and knew by experience the assurance of his salvation, the love of God in his own life. He says, I knew I was a child of God and that Christ had died for me, even for me. And from that moment, he began to preach with kind of a new fire and a new assurance and confidence, and he started a movement that turned all of England upside down, and then the... uh, the new nation of America. There was a time when it was said of Methodist missionaries that the fire uh, burned so hot in them as they uh, preached all over the, uh, the new United States of America that uh, out in the Midwest, when the weather got really bad, they would say, this weather is fit only for crows and Methodist preachers. <laughs> only a Methodist preacher would care about something so deeply that they'd get out in this and go tell others about it. And we're here to celebrate that the fire of Pentecost is still burning in the church today. And we give thanks for all of those along the way who have passed the ember and the torch down, including John Wesley. 
And then here within our own congregation of the Methodist Church here at Dauphin Way, we're wrapping up a series that we've been in for, for three weeks on the theme of sacrifice. And every week in this kind of shorter series that wraps up Easter and brings us into Pentecost, we've been looking to the scriptures to find in them examples of sacrifice, to find people who are for us biblical examples that point to those who live lives of sacrifice all around us in our own day and time. We've looked at Hagar, the mother of Ishmael on Mother's Day, and we talked about the sacrifices that mothers make and the sacrifices that are sometimes imposed on them by others and the ways in which God redeems these sacrifices. Last week, we talked about John the Baptist and all the prophets of the scriptures, and we talked about the sacrifices that prophets have to make if they want to get us to hear the sorts of things that we don't want to hear. And we talked about the sacrifices they make and the sacrifices that are often imposed on them and the way in which the God of resurrection is able to take all that is sacrificed and redeem it, bring it to life. And in all of this, we want to live out and see see images of what is promised to us in the book of Romans chapter 12 when uh, Paul commands us and says, in view of God's mercy, offer therefore your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We're looking for those in the scriptures and in the world around us who embody for us that kind of living sacrifice. And so today we're gonna look forward a little bit. I've talked a lot about history. We're gonna anticipate by a week, Memorial Day. I hope that no one will mind too much if we we look ahead uh, to Memorial Day, even though it is not quite here yet, that, that maybe this sermon can be a way for us to prepare ourselves for it. Because uh, I'm sure that most of you are aware that uh, in our American culture, uh, we are the ones who, who designated this upcoming uh, week from Monday as Memorial Day. And yet as we honor it and we practice it, it is usually observed and kept primarily with water sports and with grilling And with the enjoyment of a day off from work and a day of rest, all of which are good things, but we don't want to take for granted what it is that we honor and that we remember on Memorial Day. As we do every year in our worship next Sunday, we will offer prayers for those who have made what has been called the ultimate sacrifice. And I hope that it won't detract too much from Memorial Day. I've come to have a real appreciation for the distinction in Memorial Day and Veterans Day. Uh, I hope it won't detract too much from that ultimate sacrifice for us to name other sacrifices that are made all around us and particularly by those who serve and, and armed forces for the soldiers among us. And particularly as we consider probably the most famous soldier in all of the Bible. King David, whom we see here today, is speaking to us from the very end of his reign. This is, this is his last public speech. This is his last official act as king before he anoints and consecrates his son, Solomon, to be his successor. And we want to look at his final speech to think about the sacrifices that soldiers make and that David made and the sacrifices that are often imposed on them. And also to think about the ways in which a God of resurrection and redemption can redeem those sacrifices. You heard at the beginning of the passage today about 
how many people David gathered for this last speech that he gave. It says that he gathered all of his advisors, all of his court officials, all of his warriors and brave men, and all of his commanders, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and he brings them all together. And in many ways, this moment is David at the very peak of his glory. We read today from chapter 28 but you should know that the five chapters that precede it are like this laundry list of everyone that was here at this massive celebration and coronation there in Jerusalem. Chapter 27, half of it, like 17 verses, is just naming those commanders of the hundreds and of the thousands. We are given by the author of Chronicles a vision of just kind of this massive uh, gathering, and it is Israel gathered in its full glory. This should be the peak of David's time there. If you know the story of David, you know that his journey to this glory moment has not been one of just all he does is win, 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 no matter what. There have been some real low points along the way. David has betrayed God. David has betrayed his obligations as the king of Israel. He has not been always the very best king. He has sometimes acted in horrifying ways. He's been betrayed by his own family at this point in his life. His son Absalom has risen up and uh, has managed to make himself worse than David was at his worst and has waged war against his own father and it left David broken and heartbroken and and just in absolute tears. But by the time we get to 1 Chronicles chapter 28 today, those moments are, are pretty well and far in the past and David has been profoundly humbled by his failures and the the failures around him. And in the latter days of his reign, it has brought Israel into this time of prosperity and abundance. And everything about Israel is changed by what David has done and by the ways that he has led them. And he is now, as he gathers all these people there, he is preparing to do something that no one else has ever done in the history of Israel. He is preparing to pass on his crown, to take it off, to to give up his title, to give it to his son Solomon and have the first uh, peaceful transfer of power in all of Israel's history in hundreds of years, the first transition of the kingship, the first transition of the leadership of Israel that's being accomplished entirely peacefully. And this should be a moment for David to come and take a victory lap. Because when David took over Israel, when he became king, Israel was this tribal people. They'd had kings before David, one in particular, actually. Uh, But that king hadn't done very much to divide them. When David took over, they were still very tribal. They were still very uh, divided. They were very much a secondary power in the world. And now at the end of David's reign, they have this new capital city, a strong and beautiful city called Jerusalem. That is where the Ark of the Covenant lives. So it's as if God's presence is living there with them. And he has gathered all his army and they are able to defend themselves and take care of themselves. And he has led them into this glory. But as he stands before his people, David cannot help, even at this moment that should be his finest hour, noting that there is something that is missing. And he says this, he says, I had it in my heart to build a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build this house, but God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. That's an unusual way to begin a speech to your gathered commanders 
and your bravest men. That is a very unusual opening. And it is unusually honest and brave. Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery was the commander of the 8th British Army during World War II. And one of Law's distinguishing characteristics as a commander was not only that he was a brilliant strategy or strategician, is that the word? Or tactician? One of his defining characteristics was also that Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery never risked more, more soldiers than he had to. He would train them to the nth degree. He would execute these complex and difficult maneuvers in the field that would allow them to not only win the battle, but to win with as little loss of life as possible. But in October 1942, at the Second Battle of El Amin, Field Marshal Montgomery was commanding a new group of soldiers whom he had not had a chance yet to train up to his standards. And he knew that if he sent them into the field with the order to execute the kind of complex battle maneuvers he was used to, that they would fall apart and they wouldn't have any chance. And so instead he did, he ordered what he almost never did. He ordered more of a full frontal assault on the Nazi forces because he knew he had superior weaponry and superior men he sent and superior numbers. He sent them in straight ahead on an entrenched position across the minefields that guarded the Nazi position. And he lost 13,000 of his 220,000 soldiers that day. That's far from the worst loss in any battle in World War II history. Lots of commanders lost many more men in a single battle than Bernard Montgomery lost in that particular month. But it was also far more men than he had ever lost before. If he'd made a different decision, many more would have likely died. He made the only choice he thought he could, but even so, the author Francis Spufford tells the story of how it was that in 1976, at age 88, Bernard Montgomery had a bad night. He was agitated, couldn't fall asleep. His housekeeper saw what was going on and she called his most trusted friend, one of his fellow commanders, and that commander came over and, and said, Bernard, what, what's wrong? Bernard Montgomery looked at him and said, I'm about to have to go to God and answer to him for all those men I killed at El Amin. And back in World War II, we had words like shell shock to describe the physical effects of war on the senses. And when we came to Vietnam, we acquired a new word. We called it post-traumatic stress disorder that described not only the physical effects of the shells and the bombings, but began to describe the reaction to fear and what happens to, to one's mind, to one's body, to one's life when you live in a constant state of fear and worry. And then in more recent years, the... Those who treat soldiers, particularly through the VA, have coined another term that they call moral injury that is something different from shell shock, which is about the physical effects, and something different from PTSD, which is about fear. But moral injury, they talk, is about the, the ongoing psychological challenge and the sacrifices people make with the decisions that they make and how they feel about what they have done, sometimes even when they didn't have any other choice. When they find themselves like Bernard Montgomery, stuck between the hardest of rocks and the most devastating of hardest places. And they make a choice and have to live with it. And they may have been haunted by it, not by fear 
or what happened to them, but by their own actions. Even when those own actions may have been the only option available. I spent five years before I came here to Dolphin Way ministering in a community on the edge of the, the largest military installation in the world. And many of my church members and folks I went to prayer vigils with and retreats with were members of the 7th Special Forces Group, which is the group that has lost more soldiers in Afghanistan than any other special forces group in the United States. And even for all the losses that they have suffered, the war in Afghanistan will be, or now is, the first war in American history where more soldiers have died by suicide than by enemy fire. And the sacrifices that soldiers make come in many, many different forms. And many of them are hidden from us. And as he, ends the, as he nears the end of his life and his reign, King David stands in front of his men and his life looks like a triumph to anybody else who has seen it. But as he stands there before them, he sets aside precious time in his final speech to shine a light on his own experience and what it had cost him. And David reminds us of what anyone knows who has seen war, that there is not a bright line between those over here who make sacrifices and those who do not in a war, but everyone is called upon to sacrifice. And it is only to the question of how much. There are some who make the ultimate sacrifice whom we remember on Memorial Day and all who've made other sacrifices all along the way. And David, as he stands there, is honest with his soldiers. And he's honest with himself. And in that honesty, that bravery, he sets an example for his hearers. He shows his soldiers that they can take the risk of being honest. And David invites us to listen to what he has to say. There's a Christian psychiatrist by the name of Warren Kinghorn. He used his Harvard education and his career path that could have taken him anywhere and chose to spend the, his entire life in uh, the VA system, working with soldiers who are recovering from post-traumatic stress disorder, from moral injury, from all manner of psychiatric responses to what they have experienced. And he's focused his work particularly on how churches can be a place of welcome, of support, of help and healing to those who have served and made these sacrifices. And his first advice to any church that wants to minister and honor, and honor soldiers returning from war, his first advice is to listen with complete openness. So it's incredibly important that we be willing to be a people who are able to listen without pigeonholing, will saying, oh, what you're saying must be this, and certainly without judgment that says, how could you? But also without, with an openness that doesn't put people on a pedestal, that says, oh, don't worry about that, or you don't need to think about that, or don't tell that story. A church that wants to truly be able to minister to those who have made these sacrifices in so many different ways has to be able to receive those sacrifices, to hear it. The way that the people gathered before David had to hear him say about what he was not able to do. And that doesn't mean that we get to push, or that we get to ask, or say, hey, tell me what you're going through. That's, that's not our role either. It is simply to be listeners, not to fix 
not to pigeonhole or categorize, but to recognize that every soldier's sacrifice and story is particular and personal and everyone is worthy of our patient listening whenever someone is brave enough to share it. And it's not for the listener to push the questions or expect someone to tell us their story. If they are willing, it is a gift and we should treat it as such. Dr. Kinghorn also goes on to add that one of the best things a church can do in its ministries for soldiers is to read and preach and pay attention to the hard parts of scripture because anyone who has seen combat knows that the world is full of hard things that are not easily reconciled. And the best way that we can become a trustworthy place for people to ask hard questions and share hard stories is not for us to go pushing and prying and saying, tell us your deepest, darkest secret. The best way that we can invite others to deal with the hard things and acknowledge is for us to do the same in our own lives. The way we make space for someone else to share about their sacrifice and their vulnerabilities for us to share our own vulnerability and our challenges and the hard things in our lives. And we may never match the sacrifices that others have made, but we can always honor them with our own by being willing to sacrifice our own perfect image, the image of the one who's got it all together, the image of the one who doesn't have any troubles or problems. It is not a sacrifice to match the sacrifice of the soldier, but it is a sacrifice to honor. When we are vulnerable, when we are willing to share our own stories and, attempt, and sacrifice our own attempts at being invulnerable, and finally, in addition to listening and to risking our own vulnerability, the ultimate call for Christians, of course, is always to offer hope. And even in this very curious and hard and mostly unread moment from the life of King David, he manages to turn this story towards hope. King David shares this moment so openly that he's not been able to build the temple that he dreamed of for God. And not because he wasn't able, but because God said, that is not for you. But then he says, God came to me and promised that my son Solomon would reign in peace and that the day would come when God would take up residence in the very heart of Israel through the temple that Solomon would build. And God promised that from David's descendants, God would also establish an everlasting kingdom. And as we draw close on this series in which we have talked about sacrifice and what it means for us to be a living sacrifice, we need to know that hope is still right here. And we are called to proclaim hope in every sacrifice. And we know that hope comes from God's promise. The same promise that God made to David. God promised to establish a king and a kingdom and peace and to live at the heart of Israel in the temple. And then God would fulfill that promise ultimately by sending Jesus who would become the prince of peace and who would establish the kingdom of God that stretched across all borders, who would take up residence in the heart of Israel and then would send the Holy Spirit on that Pentecost day so that each and every one of us could be the temple in which God's presence dwells and reigns in the world. We have to tell the story of hope. The story that it's not done yet until God's reign is everywhere and that the God of resurrection can redeem every sacrifice and make sure none of it is for naught. All that David sacrificed, it was not for nothing. 
His inability to build the temple did not mean that the story was done or lost forever. And we know that God kept every promise to David. We know that he kept it in Jesus Christ and because God raised Jesus from the dead, we know that every holy and living sacrifice will be redeemed and we hope for the day when heaven and earth will finally come together in the fullest way and there will be a new creation and God's gonna reconcile all the things that we can't. Several years ago, there was a a soldier's wife in my congregation who called to tell me that one of her husband's teammates had fallen in the line of duty. She asked if we could have a prayer vigil at the church for, uh, with the spouses of their team of 12 who were serving over there in Afghanistan. She asked if we could pray for their husbands who were still over there, pray for the family and their grief. And of course, my answer was yes, the sanctuary is open. When can you be there? And after we prayed and cried and after that, team of spouses had supported one another and had lifted up every prayer of grief and lament and worry and everything else. Soon after that, she sent me a a message and sent me a note that included a line that's been with me ever since. And uh, in her note, she said that she attributed this line to Douglas MacArthur, the great uh, World War II admiral. I've not actually been able to figure out when or where he said it, but it almost doesn't matter to me because what matters is that it came from her. And it spoke for her heart. So whether or not Douglas MacArthur wrote it, it was the cry of the heart of a woman named Stephanie Masso who knew what she was saying. She wrote to me and she concluded this quote, the soldier above all others prays for peace. For it is the soldier who must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. The soldier above all others prays for peace. And as we consider the sacrifices of so many through the years, the sacrifices that we will honor next weekend on our Memorial Day with celebrations and with hope and with moments that feel like peace, but moments that have been hard won and moments that were made by the sacrifices of others, surely we can join them in that prayer for the soldier above all prays for peace. And surely we can make the much smaller sacrifices, the daily living sacrifices to listen well to all the hurts of the world, to be vulnerable with our own so that no one has to put on that brave face. And surely we can do that work so that we can work for peace and we can be the peacemakers whom Christ called us to be. And we can offer peace to those around us as far as it depends on us. And we can listen well. And we can be vulnerable enough to wrestle together with hard things if that's what it takes to help someone find peace who needs it the most. And above all, we can hold fast to the promise and tell others that we know the end of the story, whatever their story is. We can tell the good news that we know the Prince of Peace and he will have the last word. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me?